Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us today for Live Dharma Sunday. Please note that if you have called in to listen to today's broadcast, that all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background interference. If you're listening from any of our Bright Dawn sites, note that it is not necessary to call in. You may have to wait a second or two for the loading and buffering process to complete, but if there is still no audio, please refresh your page. For more information about Bright Dawn and its activities and links to our social media sites, please visit brightdawn.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the talk. Welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for March 22nd, 2020. Koyo Kobose here, so very, very glad you joined us. Well, I was wondering what kind of uh, remarks to talk about this morning, and I might as well join in on uh, current events of the pan- pandemic and uh, uh, I guess most of us, all of us, can't help but get caught up in the, how this pandemic has affected everyday life. And uh, uh, so I thought, well, this is the pandemic that teaches us a lot of things. Uh, in that sense, uh, we're all visited by pandemic bodhisattvas and um it's a wake-up call. Okay, that phrase occurred to me. Uh, uh, maybe like early morning, you you know you're you're asleep and then the alarm clock goes off. It's a jarring thing, wow, you know, but it wakes us up. Okay, uh, and then I thought about how uh, there's a clip of how about what the Buddha said when uh, somebody asked him, you know. Uh, you, you're you're kind of famous and whatnot, you know. And uh, are you a, a god? Are you a deity? Are you special? You know what? And uh, he he said no, no. And then so the guy said, well, what are you? You know, you're not a deity or something. And his answer was, I am awake. Um. So so taking that. This whole analogy of a wake-up call, uh, we're, we're sort of sleepwalking through life, you know. And by sleepwalking, I, I thought, well, my personal experience with this pandemic was uh, directly experiencing the things we take for granted. That's the phrase that stuck with me, taking for granted, okay? We take for <laughs> Uh, and we take for granted where our food comes from, the importance of our social networks, 
all these things, and we can't help that. It's not our criticism. I, you know, because uh, that's the nature of life that we take for granted. Uh, we're so interconnected. So many people and things. You can't help but take things for granted. You can't. You can't uh, appreciate everything in every moment of life. You know, our attention, our focus. Okay. So it's just that's just the nature of life. And then that led me to, oh, that's kind of a nice uh, uh, first noble truth. Usually, dukkha is, say, is uh, translated as suffering, but maybe suffering is taking things for granted. Uh, to minimize the negative aspects of sleepwalking through life, uh, we want to try to wake up to the facts of life, the reality that you know we humans we're not able to be to be uh, contented all the time. That's the way it is. I mean, uh, oh, then I thought of the example of, well, supposing, you, you know, uh, that's the thing that a child, real young child has to learn. Parents teach them that, you know, things don't always go the way you, you like in life. Okay? Children you know, have to learn this. Okay? Adults too, of course, but we see it in a more innocent way with young children. Okay? Um, one uh, private uh, family joke <laughs> is uh, I don't really, I don't know how true this is, but it doesn't matter. My I have an older brother, and uh, the story is he would go shopping with my mom to the supermarket. It's a neighborhood one, and and I can imagine that. Uh, uh, he, he was old enough to go around the neighborhood by himself, apparently, because one time my mom came into the store and the manager or clerk said, uh, you know, she, this is a neighborhood store, so they they knew her, their customers. She said, oh, you know, your son came in the other day and he walked in and got an ice cream bar and he just walked right out. He goes, oh, 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 you know, I'll pay for it. But what this means is he thought everything was free. Now, <laughs> again, I don't know the context really. Uh, you know, we, our family had to go into camp, uh, relocation. Well, camp is a interesting word. Uh, internment camp, World War II. I was just a baby. My brother was five years old, stayed in the in the, the camp four years. So he might have been eight or nine years old when we moved to Chicago. And his experience was for the prior four years was camp. It was a real internment camp where life lifestyle, daily life was a little different than, you know, regular. So maybe this contributed to it, but anyway. What I envision is you go shopping in the supermarket, you get a cart, and you go down the aisle, and you put items in your cart from the shelf. So, oh, how about this? Oh, yeah, we need this. Oh, oh, I want to get this. 
it's like you're just taking it for free. You know, that's the, so he took for granted that, oh, you know, whatever you want, you could take. So he, he felt like ice cream <laughs> and he comes in and gets it. What a, what a worldview. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and in the same way, uh, I suppose you could, you know, you don't have to be even a young child to experience this, but supposing you could, you know, you could eat all the potato chips you want, right? Maybe not as a kid, okay, unless you snuck it, okay? Uh, but as an adult, you you know, you, you could do that. But somehow we learned that if you overstuff yourself, overindulge, it's going to end up being a negative experience, okay? Uh Life is going to teach us that right away, you know. Young child might think that heaven is like getting to eat all the candy you want. But uh, this is a nice example of how too much of a good thing, you know. This means that you cannot be content all the time unless you change the definition of what happiness is, okay. And it has been observed by, you know, writers or observers of humanity, humanness, is that if your dreams come true, if all your dreams come true, what a disaster. Uh, You know, so I think this is part of what's involved here in terms of uh, uh, looking at the, the dynamics of the first noble truth of, you know, uh, you cannot get everything that you want, you know, and that we we are spoiled. Okay? We're not awake, really, to the facts of life, the reality. Okay? We could only face in that direction. We could move in that direction. We could grow and keep growing, but we never arrive. Because if you arrive, then that's sort of like death. What are you, you going what, what to, you know, don't you have anything to strive for, any motivation? Think about it. Is heaven a good place? Hmm? Well, of course, you're going to have to redefine it, maybe. Well, anyway, I was thinking about this. <laughs> Things we take for granted and how to put that into a Dharma teaching. That's your assignment. Well, I'm going to introduce our guest to give us a Dharma glimpse, Julie Iramatsu. She's lives in Colorado, and she's part of our current LM12 group that's going through the lay ministry program. So let's hear from Julie. Julie Hiramatsu. When I entered theology school a few years ago, one of my aspiring minister classmates asked me why I was there. It wasn't in a very friendly tone, and I wasn't sure what elicited such a derisive inquiry. Yet I answered as calmly as I could that I was there to expand my spiritual knowledge and grounding so that I could be a more effective chaplain. She replied that I didn't need a theological education to be a chaplain. All you had to do was sit there and listen. Sit there and listen. 
Was that all there was to it? I soon learned that there was more to suffering than the obvious wounds. There were the moral and emotional injuries that stole the joy of living from people. There was the systemic injustice which transferred wounds from generation to generation. And there was the universal vulnerability we all share just by being human. I also learned that it wasn't enough to just understand suffering. One had to actively work to end the causes behind it. And so I volunteered in hospice at low-income senior housing and at a senior center, working in programs to address the poverty, isolation, and suffering of the elderly. I felt energized and humbled doing this work, and I even began to hope that maybe I could make a difference, which, of course, my ego really loved. But I also just sat there and listened. I listened to a hospice patient in a nursing facility as she frantically begged me to take her home. I listened as one woman described how her body kept her in constant pain and confusion. And I listened to a gentleman who was crippled by a stroke as he struggled to get out a few words. To be honest, listening to such stories of physical and emotional trauma was difficult. And I had to continually check my automatic reactions in order to remain present. But in the midst of this suffering, I also heard that same hospice patient, after we had prayed together for peace, whisper to me in a calm voice, try. The woman whose body was in continual turmoil also shared, with some pride and stubbornness, that she refused outside help and cleaned her own home herself because it was the one thing left that she could still do. And after many minutes of struggling to get out his words, the gentleman who had suffered a stroke smiled as he finished telling me his joke. In all these conversations, each person's true self shone forth in its multifaceted brilliance, which I would have missed if I hadn't just sat there and listened. And in that welcoming space beyond belief and perception, I experienced how we were no longer separated by our obvious differences. We were connected by our common human beingness. So much of our culture focuses on what people do and how they appear, and much less on who they actually are. And in doing so, we fail to see the Buddha nature in others. But I have found that connecting this way with others, by just sitting with and really listening to them, I receive the mutual gift of not only recognizing the Buddha nature in others, but also recognizing it in myself. As a chaplain intern, I have been privileged to witness the depth of people's fear and courage and to listen as the fullness of their lives unfolded. They have helped me to become aware of the conditioning and preconceptions that close me off to others so that I can set those aside and bear witness with compassion and curiosity. I admit that it is an ongoing challenge to hold myself and others with equal care and compassion and still remain fully open to whatever arises. It requires what Joan Halifax, a Zen Roshi and pioneer in end-of-life care, terms a strong back, soft front. 
Sometimes the strong back only lasts until I'm able to leave the room where I collapse in the face of so much suffering. Yet, it is the suffering that makes the back grow stronger and, at the same time, the front softer. As my formal education comes to a close and I prepare for a career in spiritual care, I often think about what that theology student once said to me about being a chaplain. On the one hand, I have learned a lot about suffering and injustice and how we must all work together to nurture greater harmony and compassion for all beings. And I have learned how to listen and respond in order to support an individual's healing. But I have also learned the great pleasure in not knowing how to be a chaplain and letting life show me what cannot be taught. Only in our interconnectedness with others do we get to truly learn about someone's unique pain and suffering by listening to them without separating ourselves from them, as though through their voice we are also listening to ourselves. Now, when I look at being a chaplain, it is not about making a difference or fulfilling a certain role. It is about recognizing and sharing oneness with all beings and trusting in the ministry of a listening heart. So perhaps sit there and listen wasn't such a bad description after all for what a chaplain does and for what teaches me how to do it. Uh, Thank you very, very much. Uh, This uh, theme, I guess, of uh, compassion in the same vein as the message Dharma glimpsed this morning, I remember I was at a Buddhist uh, retreat and one of the speakers said the definition of compassion. Uh, and I guess it meant Buddhist compassion. Okay, if we have to, you know, use that adjective. That uh, because the usual notion of compassion is that you're helping somebody else. Um, the stronger is helping the weaker. The have is helping the have-nots. Okay. Um, this is sort of a I guess you could call it a dualistic framework. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> You're talking about an attribute or a situation where there's two opposites, okay, dichotomy, the rich, the poor, and so forth, Uh, and maybe ethics or religion. Is is it to promote that kind of helping behavior and compassion? Is that what morality is all about? Is that what life is all about, helping others? Well... It's challenging when spirituality means, uh, well, what this person said that I was talking about is that she said uh, compassion doesn't mean we really can't help others really because we're all human beings and being human means the first noble truth. So what it means is empathy. 
What it means is suffer to suffer together, to cry together, to hold hands and say, hey, man, we're in the same boat. Or, you know, I feel your pain or something like this. Okay, even though those are glib statements. And she kind of analyzed the word compassion. Com, C-O-M, meaning together, you know, communal, community, okay, and passion, emotions, strong emotions. So we experience the strong emotions together. That's what compassion is. It's not helping <laughs> in the sense of, you know, the fortunate helping the unfortunate. It's the oneness, it's the interconnectedness to the extent that, oh, man, you know. Uh, and, of course, we might say that kind of empathy and and suffering together does help other people. Okay. But I think it's important that that's not the the easy means to an end, the goal, uh, purpose. Uh, we have to examine the what what the purpose of purpose is, so to speak. Okay. But what's our motivation in life? And if we do feel some, you know, altru- altruistic feelings are real, well, you don't want to do it in a way that uh, kind of perverts it. Because you could see how someone who it becomes a, a, a liability that you're so successfully helping others and you feel that and you get it fuels your ego. Huh? And you become critical of others who are not helping as much as you are and stuff like this. Okay. You can see how it's a self victimization trap. It could be. You know. Um so it's I think it's very uh, challenging when we talk about spiritual growth. You know. Um <laughs> I I'm th- I think about a. Uh, one of my graduate teachers, and when I was in graduate school, uh, he expressed the nature of academic life. You know, you get in, you get a, you're in graduate school, and you you're going to get a PhD in something. You know, this is the highest academic honor there is. This means that you know you uh, you become you you become knowledgeable to the greatest extent that you can about a certain topic. And what this means, actually, he was making a point, is that it makes you realize that you don't know anything. And so he said, well, see, what's what's going to happen from now on? You guys are just going to take your comprehensive exams. In, In graduate school, you have to take comps. That's what they call it. It's, you know, for several days, you get tested in all these different areas okay? uh, well, in psychology, well, it's so social psychology, abnormal psychology, developmental psychology, you know, sensation and perception, uh, you know, all the fields. You, you, you have to, you, you get a comprehensive test, okay? prelims like that, different words for it, but 
So he said, uh, right now is when you're going to know most about the broad area of psychology than you're ever going to know afterwards, because afterwards you're going to specialize. And you know what happens when you specialize? When you really go deeply into one little thing, you discover you didn't really know what you thought you knew. It's sort of like the, the whole academic field, all the experts and everything were sort of lying to you. They said, this is the way, this is what we know about this. Fundamentally, when you look into something so basic as a certain fact, uh, there's a lot of unknowns there. Okay. Uh, you have to assume a lot of conceptual framework in order to understand or approach something and the answers are all within that particular paradigm. And you could look at it a different way, and there's a challenge there. You know, there's no objective truth in a sense. Truth is always changing. I <laughs> see, that, that's a very, very big trap for students. What? I mean, there's no end. No end. This is the truth? What's, what's, how can we? Study and everything, you know, <laughs> this is the philosophy of science, maybe. But so he said, so to make to close the story about this prof that was telling us, you know, about six, six or eight of us there in the room, and he's giving us advice, <laughs> you know, life advice about going into academic life. Because when you start to look at some very fundamental question, you know. What's a what's a reinforcer? What's a reward? How does that work in the human, you know, or human organisms and so forth? Okay. Well, we really don't know, because the more you look into it, the more you realize, in a more fundamental way, there are a lot of questions. Then you look into this, and more questions come up. The more specialized, the more the expert, the more you go into the fringe of knowledge. Hey, uh, you know, there's some fundamental questions here that we don't know. And then you keep, that keeps happening, he said, until you realize that you don't know anything. And then you retire. <laughs> and we all had to laugh at that, you know. Uh, so in that sense, deep listening, huh? sit there and listen, or... Uh, we're not experts. The beginner's mind. Okay. Uh, in the expert's mind, if you're really an expert, you <laughs> you go all the way around in the circle, and you realize you you know the humility of that you don't we don't know everything, um, and that's why in Shin Buddhist. Um, framework um, spirituality if you think that you put, put some, you work hard and then you you achieve something you, or you could help some people and you feel good about it and everything that uh, that's very uh, shallow superficial huh? uh, uh, the self effort of Polishing yourself, achieving things uh, is a trap. Sometimes 
some writers have called it spiritual materialism. You know, you start to collect your your insights, your gems. Oh, I went on this retreat, and oh, I had this experience, and whoa, and it's like a little, like a pretty little gem, and you put it into your into your little pouch. So, oh, 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 look at this here, uh, blue sapphire here. Well, look at this red ruby. This is when I had this, you know, experience, and so forth. Um, instead, if the attitude is not what one has achieved, but being beginner's mind. What is spiritual practice? What is spiritual growth? Okay. Uh, in Shin Buddhism, they talk about a, a word called mampo, M-A-N-P-O. I, I, I don't know the exact uh, Chinese written characters that make up that, uh, but uh, when they talk about the fact that in Shin Buddhism, uh, they they stress that self-power uh, is not a good thing, <laughs> okay? And that it it could create just feed the ego. Uh, so what what is the practice? If you're in Zen Buddhism, so a lot of practices meditation, or in this school it's a devotional, or in this school it's this. What is it for Shin Buddhists? The traditional answer is mampo deep listening. So there's a lesson there. Okay. Um, and when you listen deeply and you hear the cries of the world, uh, then it's important to know that, well, not that you you can not make a difference and be active and so forth, but we're talking about the fundamentally uh, suffering together. You know, Buddhist compassion, okay, just using that adjective in the sense of rather than in the stereotypical notion or connotation of compassion. Have some compassion, you know. You 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 bend down to help somebody up, okay. And that's 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 certainly good and true and and so forth. Uh, but. Um, uh, It's deeper, I think, when we think about gratitude or think about listening, okay, uh, that it's not so clear-cut, the dynamics of it, okay, of the spirituality there. Huh? And you could see how sometimes the, 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 we use uh, foolish examples in order to make a point uh, and uh, t- take things for granted and so forth. But... Uh, uh, it behooves us that if we really keep going, huh? keep going, you know, that's full of constant emerging gratitude, constantly emerging humility. Huh? Um, well, hey, that's all for today's broadcast. <laughs> Till next time, hey, keep going. And you have a Beautiful day.